Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know medical care requires informed consent, but laws require informed consent. Politics, entrepreneurship, how you engage with your diet, health, exercise, even relationships. These all require a place of being informed. And I am so sick of being called a conspiracy theorist for using my brain and being informed. So that's where this podcast came to life. This is Informed Consent. I'm your host, Brooke Brewer. Let's start talking. Pfizer's CEO now says that you need a fourth dose of their COVID-19 mRNA vaccine. I, it wasn't too long ago when I remember that this was just a conspiracy. But don't worry, we have to follow the science. But not the science of Pfizer's data that was released from their vaccine multiple, multiple pages of data that was released that talks about adverse reactions, serious, serious adverse reactions. We can't follow that science though at all. It's so crazy. And the conversation of vaccines is wild. And I think that right now we are living in a time of great awakening to vaccines I remember six or seven years ago when I was an absolute nut job for not believing in vaccinations and for asking questions on vaccinations. And now six or seven years later, those very people that were calling me a conspiracy theorist are now not agreeing with these vaccine schedules. I want to ask you a very, very serious question. What makes this vaccine during COVID-19 any different than the polio vaccine or any different than the flu vaccine that we now push on our children? Think about it. If you know what you know now, the death rate of COVID, the people that are affected by COVID, the dangers of COVID within age groups, the little research that was done on these vaccines, the ingredients in vaccines, Knowing what you know during these COVID vaccines, what makes it any different than way back when? If you're someone who won't get the COVID shot, but still wants to vaccinate your children for polio, I want you to ask yourself the simple question of what makes it so different now than it was back then? With the conversation of vaccines and with the conversation of medical freedom, I want to do a multi-part series on vaccines. If you know me, you know that this is honestly probably my most passionate topic is vaccines, because in my opinion, it's the least informed consent we have of anything in the world is vaccinations. I want to take multiple episodes and dive into important conversations like the history of vaccines, ingredients of vaccines, herd immunity of vaccines. I want to talk about why we get certain vaccines. Heck, I want to dive into those actual diseases we vaccinate for. My third episode of this show, when this show was still a baby, and it still is a baby, we dove into five things I believe every person should know about vaccines. That was just the tip of the iceberg. I want to break it down in multiple episodes and go into all the things on vaccines. So 
I hope that you receive this information with an open mind. I hope you receive this information with knowledge and empowerment. Because here is the thing. We are the gatekeepers of our homes for ourselves, for our spouses, for our children, for our future grandchildren. We are the gatekeepers. When you are more empowered to do research and to take your own health into your own hands and not just blindly trusting your doctors or blindly trusting the mainstream media, when you can truly be honest with yourself and do research, your life will change. I encourage you to take notes. I encourage you to ask questions. I also, as always, encourage you to not believe everything I say. In fact, I challenge that. Take what I say and research it. Take what I say and keep asking questions because I can tell you one thing. When you keep asking questions and is when you keep learning more. Before we get into part one of our vaccine conversation, I have a couple sponsors that I want to shout out for this show. Let's talk about deodorant. Women, one in eight women are diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. Why is that? It's because of toxic ingredients. Now, don't get me wrong. Not all cancer happens because of your environment, but 95% of it does. Only 5% of cancer is caused by genetics. The rest of it is by your environment, what you put on your body, in your home. And breast cancer is getting so common. Why? One of the biggest links to breast cancer is your deodorant. Deodorant is filled with harmful chemicals like aluminum, parabens, and other toxic ingredients that actually increase the chances of diseases. Also, deodorants, typically your generic drugstore deodorants contain harmful, toxic fragrances that don't actually make your BO go away. They mask it while also seeping into your skin, right into your lymph nodes that are very, very, very close to your breast. And this is how we can really harm our health. I'm so honored to be sponsored by Primally Pure, a all natural toxic company that carries my absolute favorite all natural deodorant. Their deodorant is crafted with natural ingredients like fair trade coconut oil, arrowroot powder, baking soda free of aluminum, and Carolyn clay. They also naturally fight odors and last all day, even after a workout, because it is actually helping to detox your body from toxins. It's also made with essential oils that support the health of your hormones, nervous system, immunity, and mindset. Primally Pure is absolutely my all-time favorite all-natural deodorant I have ever found, and I would love for you guys to try it. My personal favorite is the charcoal. I also really like their blue tansy deodorant. So you can go to their website at primallypure.com. That's P-R-I-M-A-L-L-Y, pure, P-U-R-E.com. And anything that you order, if you use Brooke B, Brooke B at checkout to save you 10% off. Let's also talk about your gut health. A healthy gut is an indicator of a good overall health, and you've probably heard of prebiotics and probiotics. These are essential for your microbiome in your body to help gastrointestinal health, supporting the gut barrier integrity, optimizing micronutrient synthesis, promoting microbiome diversity. It also helps to support immune function, brain and cognitive health, and overall supports your well-being and energy. Prebiotics and probiotics are incredible, but so are postbiotics, which many people aren't familiar with. I have found the most incredible three-in-one microbiome matrix. This is called the 
Axis Trebiotic. It has cutting edge science backed by many, many, many clinical studies to help with three key factors. The GOS prebiotic helps beneficial gut bacteria populate faster and with greater intensity. The Neuroflora probiotic complex provides three scientifically selected strains of acid-resistant bacteria shown to support microbiome diversity, immune health, and brain and cognitive health. And EPCore GI Plus, a whole food fermentate, supports a healthy gut lining with optimal micronutrient synthesis and overall well-being. If that sounded like a foreign language to you, Axis Trebiotic is a patented product backed by science that use an innovative beadlet delivery system. So there's no pills that you have to swallow, but you still get 10 billion cells per serving. And it supports brain health, immune function, your microbiome, overall well-being, and energy. To try out this Trebiotic, just simply go to modir.com. That's spelled M O D. E-R-E, search for the product tree biotic, and you can use code 4842132 to save you $10 off your first order. Again, that's code 4842132. Use that at checkout and it'll take $10 off your first order. So in our first episode of our multi-series vaccine conversation, episodes on this podcast, I want to spend some time and talk about the history of vaccines. I think it's important for you to see the history of how vaccines started and the main vaccines that really made an impact on the future of vaccinations. Variolation is a method of immunizing patients against smallpox by infecting them with a substance from the postules of patients with a mild form of the disease. The disease then usually occurs in a less dangerous form than when contracted naturally. The method became popular in England in 1721 to 22 by Lady Mary Wortley Montague. It has been long known by the Turks, Chinese, and other peoples. In America, Cotton Mather learned of its use in Africa from his slave Onesimus, who himself had been inoculated. Its use spread in America after 1721, and in 1728, it was introduced into South America. Variolation continued to be opposed by some religions, for by some religious groups and most physicians who are not convinced of the safety of the method. It was supplanted by vaccination after 1798. In 1842, an act of parliament in England made the practice of variolation a felony in that country. The very first vaccines, the true vaccines. So Edward Jenner invented the method to protect against smallpox in 1796. The method involved taking material from a blister of someone who was infected with cowpox and inoculating it into a person's skin. This was called arm-to-arm inoculation. However, by the late 1940s, scientific knowledge had developed enough so that large-scale vaccine production was possible and disease control efforts could begin in earnest. The next routinely recommended vaccines were developed early in the 20th century. These included vaccines that protect against pertussis, which came out in 1914, diphtheria, which came out in 1926, and tetanus, which came out in 1938. These three vaccines were combined in 1948 and given the DTP vaccine, the diphtheria tetanus pertussis vaccine. 
I want you to really think about something. In the late 1940s, the recommended vaccines was the smallpox, the diphtheria, the tetanus, and the pertussis, which again were given in a combination of a DTP vaccine. So I want to I wanna take a pause here. I want to ask you, what, what do you feel about the recommended vaccines in the 1940s? What does your gut tell you? Personally, my gut tells me that why during a time when sanitation practices were so much lower, cleaning efforts, clean foods, clean practices, why in a time when more people were getting ill, were there less vaccines? Now I'm already in my mind thinking of the counter argument. Well, all these vaccines were developed to help with all those illnesses that we're having back then. Okay. That, that, that's, this is right. This is the, the thoughts that we should ha- be having in our mind. And it goes to show just a question I want you to ask yourself. And I want you to continue to ask yourself this question. As we've introduced more vaccines into our schedule, what has the statistical health of our country and our children been over time? I want you to pause on that conversation. I want you to think about it, but we're going to keep going. So going back to the late 1940s vaccine recommendation. So again, it essentially is two actual shots where there's actually four vaccinations. So again, that's for the smallpox and the DTP, which is the diphtheria, the tetanus, and the pertussis vaccine. Around this time was the vaccine that everybody was waiting for, the infamous polio vaccine. How many times have you heard someone say, well, polio, well, vaccines, well, polio, vaccines are bad, polio, vaccines don't work, polio, right? That's what everyone's argument is against vaccine efficacy and vaccine success rates is the polio. We are going to, we're going to get into this conversation. We're really, really going to dive into this, but I I, I don't want to touch on it too much because I want to keep going with the history of vaccines. People were so scared of the polio epidemics that, yeah, they kept their children away from swimming pools. They kept them to stay with relatives in the country until they really fully understand the spread of polio. They waited closely for vaccine trials. They sent so much money to the White House to help the cause. When the polio vaccine was licensed in 1955, the country celebrated and Jonas Salk, its inventor, became an overnight hero. But again, the polio vaccine was not without issue. We're going to talk about the Cutter incident here soon. If you haven't heard of the Cutter incident, And you're going to talk about the polio, the efficacy of the polio vaccine. You need to know about the cutter incident. I want you to also pause here. And I want you to think of your gut. Again, we were designed by God to be incredible human beings. And one of the things that God gave us was intuition. And my intuition, when I hear What happened during polio, people being so afraid that they were not leaving their home, that they kept their children away from doing things. They sent them to other places. 
waiting for a vaccine to come save them. What does that sound like? I'll give you a hint. It sounds like what we're living in right now. So finally, again, Jonas Salk, the inventor of the polio vaccine, became a hero, which means that in the late 1950s, we have an added recommended vaccine to the schedule. So on top of the smallpox, the DTP, we also have the polio, which was known as the IPV vaccine. Following this 1950s release of the polio vaccine, around the 1960s is when the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccinations hit the market. In 1963, the measles vaccine was developed, and by the late 1960s, vaccines are also available to protect against the mumps, specifically in 1967, and rubella, specifically in 1969. These three vaccines were combined into the MMR vaccine in 1971. I want to take another pause here. So we have at least three different decades now that we're looking at, and we keep introducing more vaccines. But something that my intuition always asks me the question of is, why all these combination vaccines? Why can't we just get a tetanus vaccine and not the DTP? Or, okay, I want to get a measles vaccine, but I don't want to get the MMR because I don't feel like I need the mumps vaccine. Consider these combination vaccines. This is an important thing to talk about. This is an important question to ask yourself because, as we will talk about, you can't just go to your doctor and say, I just want to get a diphtheria vaccine, or I just want to get a pertussis whooping cough vaccine. That's what I'm afraid of. I'm not afraid of tetanus, but I just, I'm afraid of whooping cough. Well, guess what? You can't. It's a three for one, not a one. Ask yourself why. Why can't you get it by itself? If it works so good, why can't we get it by itself? Moving on to the late 1960s. Again, now we have the smallpox, the diphtheria, the tetanus pertussis. Again, that's in the DTP. We have the polio. Now we have the OPV. We'll talk about this in our polio conversation where we talk about the different vaccines that have come through polio. And now we have the measles, mump, rubella. Again, that comes in the form of the MMR. Then we have the measles, mumps, and rubella. In the late 1960s, you actually could get these separated. But then the 1970s came, and this is when one vaccine was eliminated, but we have a combo vaccine. So during the 1970s, the smallpox vaccine was no longer recommended to use after 1972, but there was no longer a way to get measles, mumps, or rubella separately. You could only get them in the combination of the MMR. So now we're looking at the late 1970s, and again, no smallpox anymore as that got rid in 1972, but now we have diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis in the DTP. We have the polio, and then we have the MMR vaccine now, which is the measles, mumps, and rubella. So what happens in the development of the vaccine schedule in 1980s? In the 1980s, hepatitis B vaccine was starting to get studied and developed. 
1994 actually was when this vaccine was added to the, to the schedule, but it was recommended for high risk groups, such as infants whose mothers were hepatitis B surface antigen positive healthcare workers, drug users, homosexual men, and people with multiple sexual partners. However, immunization of these groups didn't effectively stop transmission of the hepatitis B virus because shocker drug addicts don't generally show up for vaccines. The change of recommendation to immunize all infants in 1991 was the result of these failed attempts to control hepatitis B by only immunizing high risk groups. Infants are not sexually active, and the Hep B is a hotly contested subject even among pediatricians. We talked about this in episode three of Informed Consent, the hepatitis B vaccine. I have really big problems with this one, which we're going to go into this one in much detail in one of our series on the show, but I want to repeat this statement. In 1991, it is recommended to immunize all infants because of the failed attempts to control hepatitis B by only immunizing high-risk groups. So infants, you get the Hep B vaccine. It's actually one of two vaccines that newborn babies are recommended to get. Within your first moments of life, they give this newborn baby who, remind you, is not sexually active, this vaccine, for the protection of everybody because they can't seem to get high-risk groups to get their vaccines. It has such controversy as it should, especially if the mother of this newborn baby does not have surface antigen positive hepatitis B. That is when it is considered high risk groups. And even at that, we still have a little bit of concerns, but we give this, we give this vaccine to newborn infants. And that I think was a huge downward spiral of vaccinations, especially for our children. The Hamiopyphilus influenzae type B vaccine was introduced around 1985 and was put on the schedule in 1989. Then in 1994 is when the hepatitis B vaccine was added to the schedule. And by 1995, we have the diphtheria, the tetanus, the pertussis, the DTP, the measles, the mumps, the rubella, the MMR, the polio, the OPD, the Hib, and the hepatitis B. In the next decade, we have an insane amount of increased vaccine schedule. Between 1995 and 2010, there was big important changes. New vaccines. So the chickenpox vaccine came out in 1996. This is called the varicella vaccine. Your chickenpox shot that famous chicken pox where parents used to just say, the neighbors got the chicken pox. Let's all go party at the neighbor's house so y'all can get your chicken pox and then we're going to be good. No one used to fear the chicken pox, but we have to get that vaccine. Mm-hmm. Yep. That is known as the varicella vaccine. It's not called a chicken pox shot. It's called the varicella. Also what came out between 1998 and 1999, and then as well in 2006 and 2008 is the rotavirus vaccine. We have in 2000, the hepatitis A vaccine. 
And then 2001 is the pneumococcal vaccine. Additional recommendations for existing vaccines include the influenza in 2002, the hepatitis A in 2006, and then also new versions of existing vaccine. So we have an acellular pertussis vaccine, which is the DTAP. So acellular, we'll get into that in another episode, what that fully means. The intranasal influenza in 2004, and we discontinued the oral polio vaccine in 2000. So by 2000, the recommended vaccinations that you are meant to get by the time you are 18 years old is the diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, the DTP, the measles, mumps, rubella, the MMR, the polio, the IPV now, because remember we discontinued the oral polio vaccine, the Hib, the hepatitis B, the varicella, and the hepatitis A. By 2010, the recommended vaccines now include the diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. Remember that acellular pertussis. So that's the DTAP now. The measles, mumps, rubella, the MMR, the polio, the IPV, not the oral, the Hib, the hepatitis B, varicella, hepatitis A, pneumococcal, influenza, and rotavirus. In 2014, is the meningococcal serogroup B vaccine. Also, recommendations for existing vaccines, we have the HPV vaccine in 2011 to routinely vaccinate males, the intracellular influenza vaccine in 2018, and we discontinued in 2016 that intracellular influenza vaccine. So I want to go back to our conversation on the combination vaccines. In the early 1950s, four vaccines were available, the diphtheria, the tetanus, pertussis, and smallpox. But because of three of these vaccines were combined into a single shot, children received five shots by the time they were two years old. By the mid-1980s, seven vaccines were available, diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, measles, mumps, rubella, and polio. But because six of these vaccines were combined into two shots, the DTP and the MMR, and one, the polio vaccine, was given by mouth, children received five shots by the time they were two years old. But here's where language can get really tricky. And I think this is why it's important as a mother and father to be aware of your vaccines. You might sit there and watch a a doctor put a needle in your child's body thinking they're just getting one vaccine. Guess what? It's not advertised language. And the language is not ever used to actually educate parents that it's a three-in-one shot is actually three shots, not one. You're getting three shots in one shot. The MMR vaccine is not one shot. It's three shots in one. So while it might look like you're only getting one shot, you're getting three. Some other interesting things happened in the mid-1980s since many vaccines have been added to the schedule. Now, I first want to go back and ask yourself, why? In 1986, the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act was passed. The basic premises of this act is that it removed liability from vaccine manufacturing companies. So you could not and cannot sue a vaccine manufacturing company but people still get paid out from vaccine injury. Right, they do because of our taxpayer dollars. 
In every vaccine, there's a small fund that goes into a fund. And if you can prove, which is very hard to do, by the way, that you were injured by a vaccine, you have to go through lots of legal action, but you could potentially get a payout from that fund. But you can't sue a vaccine manufacturer if you are injured by a vaccine. But what I find very, very interesting is that since the mid-1980s, many vaccines have been added to the schedule. Wow, weird how that is. We remove liability and then bam, all these vaccines go on the market. And and not only are there more vaccines on the market, but the vaccine schedule has now become more complicated than it ever has been. And that's because you could be potentially getting up to nine shots in a single visit. However, the way that these vaccines are combined, as we've been talking about, it makes it reduce the appearance of shots. By the mid-1980s, there's multiple shots that you could be getting. So you have the diphtheria, tetanus, and the acellular pertussis, the DTAP, but you also have the diphtheria, the tetanus, the acellular pertussis, and the inactivated polio vaccine. You could also get the combo of diphtheria, tetanus, acellular pertussis, inactivated polio, and hepatitis B. You can also get the diphtheria, the tetanus, the acellular pertussis, the inactivated polio, and the Hib. You could also get the measles, mumps, rubella. You can also get the measles, mumps, rubella, and varicella. You can also get the Hib and the hepatitis B all in one. Each one of those combo into one shot. So what you think is one vaccine is actually potentially four. By 2005, the Tdap, the meningococcal codulate, in 2005, the HPV came out in 2006 for females, 2009 for males. The meningococcal serial group B vaccine in 2014, as well as recommendations for existing vaccines, the HPV 2011 to routinely vaccinate males, and the intracellular influenza vaccine in 2018 again is recommended. There's also new versions of existing vaccines, the HPV protecting against nine different types in 2015. So now by 2000, we have even more recommended vaccines as well as catch up vaccines, as well as boosters, as well as new versions to get better strains. So now when you think you're just getting the HPV, well, now you might need a new HPV because this one protects against more strains. Does this sound similar to any of you? of what we are dealing with right now. I really want everyone to think about that for a second. We sit there and look at the language of vaccines throughout our history. And then we look at the language of vaccines that we went through or are going through right now. And my intuition tells me that something sounds fishy. And then my intuition even tells me someone who has spent hundreds and hundreds of hours researching vaccines, my intuition tells me, gosh, even with all the research I've done, I still look back and, and, and ask questions like, honestly, WTF is what is happening right now in COVID, how all these other vaccines were able to be introduced, like the polio, like the HPV, like the smallpox, like the pertussis. Do these vaccines really save lives? 
Are people really dropping dead? Are newborn babies really dropping dead from all these diseases left and right? Like they are of COVID-19? Smell the sarcasm? I am never, ever, ever saying that life is okay to lose. Every life that has been lost is heartbreaking. Whether you died of COVID, whether you died of breast cancer, whether you died of polio, whether you died from getting stricken by lightning. No death is a okay death. So please, I am not saying that. But what I am saying is why can't we ask more questions without getting called a conspiracy theory? I want to wrap up this part, this episode in my vaccine series is to give you three questions to always remember to ask. Always. Number one, is the shot likely to work? Number two, should the disease be contracted, how likely is it to be dangerous or fatal? And number three, what are the risks of the shot and what are the side effects? You are allowed to ask these questions. You are allowed to get these answers. You are allowed to be empowered If you ask these questions to your pediatrician and they tell you that you're being a conspiracy theorist or they tell you that you're being stupid or they tell you that you're going to put your child's life at risk, you need to fire that pediatrician and you need to get a better doctor because doctors work for you. You do not work for them. They medically, legally are supposed to answer these questions. That is true informed consent. If you ask a doctor, if this disease is contracted, how likely is it to be dangerous or fatal? And they look at you and go, I don't know, run. You should be able to know these questions. And I'm urging every single one of you, especially new parents who are asking whether or not they should get a vaccine for their child, do the research, research each vaccine that they're supposed to be getting. Ask yourself the three questions. Is the shot likely to work? Should the disease be contracted? How likely is it to be dangerous or fatal? And what are the risks of the shot? And what are the side effects? I never want to advise someone to do one thing or the other. I've always empowered you. I've always strived to empower each and every one of you to make your own decisions based on your research to do research on things, to ask questions, and to come to your own conclusion. It's important to examine the facts. It's important to weigh the risks and the benefits of everything. And it's important to ask questions. And if you feel that you can't ask questions, you are not in a safe environment, period. You should be allowed to ask questions. I should be allowed to ask questions. Everyone should be allowed to ask questions. And the more and more we are not allowed to ask questions, the less free of a world that we are living in. I'm going to wrap up this week's episode with a reminder to always consult with your doctor, but to always remember that your doctor works for you and that they are required to give you full informed consent. And if you do not feel like you are getting full informed consent, it's time to find a new doctor. As always, I will link everything in the show notes, books, recommendations of what I think to start with, good videos to watch, documentaries, 
There is so much research out there on vaccine. It's almost overwhelming. That's what my hopes with these series of vaccines will do for you to very slowly step-by-step talk about these important subjects of vaccines while also empowering you to do your own research. Cause I always will say, I never want to get up here and share, share, share. And you guys take word for word what I say and go, yeah, Brooke Brewer said that she's the doctor. She's the specialist. Cause I'm not, I'm still learning. My opinions on things have changed. My thoughts on things have changed. That's a part of life. And that's a part of being empowered, but you need to take your life and your children's life with dignity, with respect, with honor, with research, with empowerment. Remember, you are the gatekeeper of your home. Don't let things in that you don't want in. You are allowed to say no. You are allowed to say yes. You are allowed to do whatever you feel that you were designed by God to do. And with that, as always, please share this episode, especially this series with anybody that you know that might get value from this, whether you have a family member who has a baby on the way, whether you have a child on the way, whether you have a newborn, whether you have someone who is hesitant on your beliefs on vaccines, or whether you know someone who just might really need this. Sharing this information in a world of censorship is how we help to empower others. I hope you all have a wonderful week and I will see you next week with part two of our vaccine conversation series. 